Hey, everybody, and welcome to season two of the All About Everest podcast. And I'm your host, Pauline Reynolds Nuttall. On this podcast, you can get anything and everything about Mount Everest, including interviews, book recommendations, tips, updates, and a whole lot more. So welcome to the spring 2023 Everest climbing season. And here we go. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the All About Everest podcast. And today's episode is with a very special individual, Guy Cotter from Adventure Consultants. He is a mountaineer, adventure, and the CEO of Adventure Consultants. If you know anything about Everest history, you know about the 1996 Everest disaster in which Rob Hall passed away. At the time, Rob Hall was the owner of Adventure Consultants and Guy Cotter took over the company after Rob's death. During the 1996 disaster, Guy was actually guiding on Pomori, and so he wasn't involved. He was actually played by Sam Worthington, the guy from Avatar, in the 2015 Everest movie. Guy and I had a fabulous conversation. I really loved our interview. And I say this every week, how much I love doing these interviews, but I truly mean it. I love people. I don't know if you can tell from listening to me every week, but I am an extrovert and my five minute shopping trip usually turns into 45 minutes because I'll start talking to someone. In fact, I have like grocery store friends. I don't even know their names, but we sit and we visit every time we bump into each other when I go to Albertsons. You guys, this interview was fantastic. Um, We talk a little bit about the 1996 Everest disaster and Rob Hall closer to the end. We mainly talk about the changes in mountaineering. Guys, journey from being being a mountaineer to being the owner and CEO of one of the best, if not the best expedition companies. And he's so down to earth. He's fun to talk to. And his, uh, his insights to how climbing has changed, how expeditions have changed how to make things better. It's extremely insightful and I really enjoyed our conversation. The one thing that I wish that we had talked about was how he is a consultant for movies and he was a consultant amongst other movies um, for the 2015 Everest movies. And I totally spaced talking to him about that. I found it very interesting. But before we get to the rest of the episode, just a couple of things that I wanted to talk about. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about isn't necessarily Everest related. However, it is something that has occurred on Mount Everest and in the Himalayas and other mountaineering expeditions. 
So on K2, 27-year-old Sherpa Mohammed Hassan died. Uh, he slipped from the fixed ropes and was hanging upside down for more than an hour. Well, Kristen Harilla, and I know that I'm saying her name wrong, so I apologize, Kristen, if you're listening to this, um, has been singled out. And specifically, Kristen has been singled out, even though she was on a team of other individuals and her team was not the only one on the mountain. Um, Hassan, he fell at probably the most dangerous spot on K2. It's a sheer face and there's just a tiny bit of a ledge. I want to say it's not even a foot. Um, and it's the most dangerous part of that mountain. So many deaths on the bottleneck and she has been singled out. The thing is, is that we were not there. I was not there. And we've talked about this before. There are so many factors when it comes to, to these decisions on the mountain. Um, I would hope that someone's summit goal and the money that they've paid for this expedition would not even be factors, wouldn't even be relevant. Um, I, I would hope that it would be more regarding personal safety and capability than anything else. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with um, whoever hired him. I think that's part of it as well. You know, did they make sure that he had the right equipment and gear? Um, did he have enough experience? Those are factors that come into play as well, but I don't think anyone should be blamed. And the best example that I can give you is the 2006 Everest disaster with David Sharp when, um, essentially Sir Edmund Hillary, he called out Mark Inglis, who is an amputee, but nobody else was called out for it that publicly. Um, there were other teams on the mountain, um, and he was climbing with a team, but he specifically was called out. So I want people to just kind of step back a little bit and remember that there are so many factors. Um, this was a similar situation to when Jared McDonald died on K2. He was saving someone, um, I believe it was two Taiwanese um, that were tangled in the fixed ropes. They were upside down. And while he was trying to save them, um, all three of them perished because of an avalanche. So again, you know, you, there's so many things to consider. I would like to say that if that happened, um, I would give up everything to help that person. But again, I'm not in that situation. I don't know. We even talked about it at the dinner table this last week because it's such a hot topic and we were kind of divided. We really were. And the one thing that my brother-in-law said that stuck to me was, 
he should have had a team that didn't leave him behind. And that's something that Guy Cotter touches on in his interview, not this specific situation, but leaving your teammates behind. And that happened a lot this year on Mount Everest. So just kind of something to think about. The second thing that I wanted to talk about is there are a lot of books coming out in the next couple of months that have to do with Everest, but just mountaineering and mountaineers. Guy and I talk about his book that's coming out in October. It's only going to be available in New Zealand, even though he is looking for a publisher elsewhere, like in the U.S., so hopefully he can find one. It's called Everest Mountain Guide, The Remarkable Story of a Kiwi Mountaineer, and I am looking forward to it. I totally need a copy. I might have to like fly to New Zealand to get one or I don't know. I will find a way. But um, even though we talk about it in the episode, I just kind of wanted to bring that up. Um, there is also a book coming out, I believe, in April by Will Cockrell. And it's about the... Um, it's about the commercial guiding, how it happened, um, especially on Mount Everest and how it's changed things. Ellen Arnett, um, he announced that he has a book coming out. He doesn't have a publisher yet. It's more about um, his journey on K2 as well as his journey with um, his mother and Alzheimer's and um, awareness of that disease. And then I know that Ella Stewart had a book coming out, believe it was supposed to be towards the end of this year. Um, I did follow up with him. I haven't heard anything back, but I'm really excited. That's like at least four books that I know that you guys are excited to hear about. And then um, last but not least, I wanted to share a little um, message that was sent to me it totally made my Monday and it's a message that Ellis sent to me. I interviewed him last year and um, I just wanted to share his little three sentence note. Thanks for mentioning my book in your top 10 Everest books podcast recently, Pauline. Very kind. Keep up the great work with the podcast. You are doing great things. I love to hear things like that. It just makes me warm and fuzzy inside. And you guys know how much I love doing this. And I love my listeners. So thank you again so much, Ellis. You are a fabulous and wonderful human being. And that's it. We're going to go ahead with the rest of this episode. I hope you enjoy it. And here we go. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the All About Everest podcast. I am so excited to introduce Guy Cotter from Adventure Consultants. Hi, Guy, and thank you so much Hi. for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to join you, and uh, thanks for taking the time to have a chat. So how long have you been in the mountaineering industry? Mountaineering industry? Well, I first started climbing... Um, you know, way back in the early 70s, uh, started when I was quite young, uh, but finally became a, a guide 
uh, in my early 20s. Uh, I'd been <laughs> climbing around New Zealand and climbing internationally and skiing in America and, um, you know, been to Yosemite and rock climbing in Australia and all that and came back to New Zealand and started my guides qualification in my early 20s and uh, finally uh, finished my guides qualification in the, in the 80s and went on expeditions uh, after that to the Himalayas, Alaska and so on and then first went to Everest in 1992 uh, which uh, I was lucky enough to make a successful ascent on, on that trip. And when you first climbed Mount Everest did you do it as a guide or as a mountaineer? Or both? I did, I did it as a guide and a mountaineer, yes. Uh, a lot more mountaineering in those days. Uh, so I was working with Rob Hall and Gary Ball. They'd just started up Adventure Consultants and they had climbed Everest themselves in 1990. And 1992 was the first you know, real commercial expedition that, uh, that they ran to Everest. Um, and we were alongside uh, the likes of Alpine Ascents at the time. Uh, they were also starting up on the mountain that year uh, so you know we thought the mountain was pretty busy there was you know about 80 people climbing so um, things have changed a lot uh, as far as you know the number of people going and also um, just the you know the concepts of what's achievable and what isn't certainly back then it was probably a lot more like mountaineering uh, clients had to you know have a have a good resume before coming uh, and people would carry a lot more of their own gear and it was like you know they were more like mountaineers I guess than you know the, the trend these days. So would you say nowadays it's almost more touristy than it is mountaineering in a way? Uh, yeah certainly you know as Mesna put it it's alpine mountain tourism uh, just because things are so well set up in that respect, uh, the number of people on the mountain and, and also the number of years that a lot of people have been going there and if you like the infrastructure uh, that is part of being on Everest in this day and age compared to what it was like back then. You know, back then we were having to fix the ice fall, uh, we had to fix the ropes up the mountain, all the teams would have to get together and try and collaborate on, on all of this and it was... Uh, um, you know, it was uh, interesting to see how well or otherwise uh, groups did work together. And that was something that happened on Everest over the years is that we, you know, we're competitors with, you know, all of these other operators. Uh, but when we got to the mountain, it was like the competition was over. We already had, you know, the, the number of clients that we had and we had to work together a lot to be able to have any of us have a chance of success. Uh, and alongside that were all of the usual international expeditions or, you know, very small groups or whatever who um, would not contribute anything. Uh, we'd have big base camp meetings and everybody would agree to do all sorts of stuff and then they wouldn't turn up when it came to it. So we ended up working alongside a lot of the operators. Um, who, you know, some of them are still there today, still operating. And would you say that the commercialization has not only changed mountaineering in a way but it's also changed the face of Everest? Yeah absolutely it's changed the face of Everest a lot I mean some of it's positive 
you know, the mountain is much safer than it was way back when the, you know, the quality of the rope fixing and the ladders and the ice fall is all, um, you know, way better than it used to be, you know, so there are some positives, um, you know, there are some parts of it that are, um, you know, you are talked about in negative ways by members of the climbing community, and I can fully understand that. Um, but we are working in the context of Nepal. Uh, it's their country, it's their mountain, you know, we're guests on their mountain, um, and it's not really up to us to dictate terms. And I think what we're seeing now is we're sort of seeing um, an era where those of us who were mountaineers, became guides, ran expeditions because we love being in the mountains and taking people to the mountains. Yeah, you know, we're now working alongside uh, operators who are just there for the money, and it's it's a business. And uh, whilst that, that might be the the death of adventure and the death of mountaineering the way that it was, um, it's also um, you know the the livelihood. Of a lot of the Nepalese, they sort of see that it's a you know a great thing for especially the, the Sherpa people because you know they've got a direct connection to it. Uh, they're fully involved with it, um, and so we have a Western point of view about what mountaineering should be like. Um, but that's always been the thing that I've enjoyed about Everest is you meet people from all walks of life who have a different point of view about uh, you know everything in the world and. You know, our Western point of view about what mountaineering, you know, the romantic Western idea of what it should be like. Um, yeah, sure, that's relevant to us, but not everybody in the world thinks the same way. And it's actually up to us to acknowledge that and recognize that um, because a lot of people just can't get past the fact that it's no longer mountaineering as they knew it. Um, and they just throw their arms up in disgust. But, um, you know, there are positives going on. And I think that, um, you know, for us to move forward, uh, we've got to kind of work in with the local operators and, and try and uh, encourage an approach that uh, is workable uh, environmentally, socially, uh, and also to protect the reputation of, of mountaineering because to a lot of people, it's a, it's a circus what's going on. And I can fully appreciate why. Yeah, that seems to be one of the ongoing themes that we talk about is this circus that's happening, um, some of the integrity that's being lost, people that are in it just for the money without thinking of the other things around it, like the safety. Um, how important do you think safety is when it comes to an operator? Uh, it's paramount. Safety should be paramount. And it's not that hard to work it out, um, how to operate safely, especially in this day and age. But, you know, there are, uh, there are the structure, uh, the mindset of the operation, the way they put the expedition together, and also the relationship they have with the clients who are coming along and the expectation for the clients is very different from, from what it used to be and very different from the way we would approach all of that. And what I mean by that is that uh, an operator is trying to attract clients. Um, 
and, and even the Western operators started up like this. You know, they'd see the likes of us in Alpine Ascent there. They'd say, there's no room in the market. What can we do? Oh, we can be cheaper. That's how we can, you know, get a foot into this market. And that's what IMG did in the early days on Everest. They realized that they couldn't just operate the same way as us. So they chose a different model, which was Sherpa-led. And that kind of started the ripple effect of, of where we've got to now. And uh, so what we've got now is a situation where there are a lot of operators who are selling their trips at the lowest rate that they or just cheaper than the other guys. And that's how they get clients. Um, but what they're also attracting is the client who is shopping on the internet for the cheapest Everest ever expedition they can get onto. What they're not realizing, including many of the operators, they're not realizing that they, they haven't done a budget, they're just going cheaper than the other guys. And so they don't have the money to actually provide the services that are required. And so you know, we're seeing people turn up with no experience because they've been allowed onto the expedition. You know, there's not enough Sherpa support. There's not enough of, of, of everything, oxygen and so on. Um, and this is having a ripple effect through to theft on the mountain, through, you know, people, you know, a lot of these accidents that are occurring um, that are totally avoidable. Um, so, you know, that's where we've got to. And, you know, we need to come back to safety and sustainability um, you know, as being the primary objectives that we have when we go to the mountain rather than to make money. One of the other things besides like the safety and making sure that you can provide everything, um, there are certain criteria that the guiding company, most of them have for their clients. Do you have those in place as well? Like if you're going to allow someone on expedition, what experience do they have to have? Uh, things like that. Certainly on, on our trips, um, we work with people for quite a few years sometimes to get them from a starting point to when they get to Everest. Um, so the criteria varies a little bit depending on where people come from and what attributes they bring as far as their fitness and strength and so on. But you know, we're certainly looking at people having done the likes of, uh, you know, mountaineering courses, followed by ascent, say, in Europe, getting up some mountaineering background, uh, going on and maybe doing one of the trekking peaks in Nepal, and then probably doing something like Akinkawa or Denali uh, as stepping stones to Everest. You know, because what I want to see is that people, when they arrive on the mountain, that they are actually... Uh, capable of looking after themselves, they're they're strong enough. They're you know they can work within the safety parameters that we create for them. And I also want to see people climb the mountain themselves. They're not being dragged up by us. You know we're not um, you know taking all of the glory and you know they just step in line sort of thing. We want I want to see people walk away from the expedition feeling that it's something that they personally have, have achieved. And um, People, I think, feel a much greater sense of achievement if they have done the mountain style. Uh, and that is in itself going out of style because there are so many people who don't do it in, in style. If, you know, again, I'm referring back to uh, you know, my um, approach to you know, how mountains should be climbed. But um, you know, we're seeing people come down off the mountain and fly out from Camp 2 because 
they don't want to go down through the icefall another time. Uh, you know, these sorts of things going on that to me is just not mountaineering, but uh, that's the, you know, so some, some people are operating like that. So our approach is to actually get people looking after themselves and operating with us. We guide people, we show them the way, uh, but we're not doing it for them. Another question that comes up a lot when I've talked to operators is, do you think it's cheating if you were to, to circumvent the Kumbu Icefall with a helicopter? Uh, for me personally, yes. Um, and, you know, again, it's a, a style thing. Uh, but I personally think you've got to go all the way up the mountain, all the way back down. And I think people who get rescued after they've summited um, shouldn't get a summit certificate. You know, that would be one of the simple things to do to sort out a lot of these issues that are going on. It's not, not a difficult thing to do. Um, and then we would see people you know, being fully committed to getting up and down the mountain and recognizing that if they need help getting off after they've dragged themselves to the summit and give up hope then and just get everybody to take them down off the mountain because they got too tired, um, that they don't get a summit certificate. And it would, it would very quickly sort out the problem. I think that that's a really good point, um, especially with this last spring, the amount of rescues on the mountain, uh, people being helicoptered out, the amount of injury, um, talking to a couple of doctors, the amount of frostbite injuries was like more than double what it is in yes. a normal year. Way more. Yeah, we. I mean, it was a very, very cold season this season, a um, lot of frostbite. And, you know, part of it is that people aren't used to looking after themselves and they need to be told everything as opposed to have developed enough mountaineering skills to, you know, to know, oh, my hands are cold. <laughs> I mean, it, it is quite difficult for some people to understand this, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's just something that, you know, we've got to um, try and, uh, make sure that people don't get themselves into trouble. And see, I, I think a big part of the, the issue that we're seeing is that when we first started coming here, we'd work with a local agency in Nepal who would, you know, help us with the permits and, you know, sometimes staffing and whatever level of service you wanted. But we were the people who ran the expedition, same with all the national teams or anybody who came to run the expedition. Uh, and then we heard from some of the you know, the locals that oh, they thought that, you know, they were doing all the work. We we're just the middlemen. They thought they would cut us out. You know, that's as simple as they were thinking about it. And so, you know, they started to offer expeditions to anybody who wanted to sign up. And so you get all of these individuals uh, who haven't been vetted turning up on, a, on an expedition. The operator watches these people go off and die. And they go, well, it's not our fault. We have no responsibility about this, um, just as me um, working with an operator, they're not responsible for the decisions I make. So they didn't actually make the connection between what is the responsibility of guiding a person on the mountain and, and what that entails. And unfortunately, uh, you know, because of a lack of um, guiding skills from a lot of the um, cheaper operators, and this is Western and local, 
they don't know how to avoid accidents happening. So what's happening now is that people are paying least that they can, they end up with one Sherpa on summit day or whatever, they go up to the top um, because they don't have enough physical experience to know how to look after their energy levels, all they're thinking about is the summit, they get to the summit, it's like, oh, help, get me down. Um, and of course, you know, one single Sherpa with this person isn't going to be able to get that person down. And But that's all they've set themselves up for and the, the operator hasn't identified that they need more support because this is one of the things that people are going to do. Um, inexperienced people just have no idea that they're going to get themselves in these situations. The Sherpa tries their best to help get this person down. They've run out of oxygen. They're you know, still high on the mountain. They go, well, either I sit here with this person and I die too, or I leave them to die. You know, And that's, that's what's been happening. That's what most of the incidents on Everest this season was exactly that. And because they're not, most of them aren't real guides. See, Nepal's got a mountain guides association of very good, you know, highly skilled guides, just like the rest of the world. Uh, you know, and they're good, they're very good operators, uh, but there's a lot there who have been guiding on the mountain, if you like, they've been escorting people on the mountain, but they don't actually have guiding background, don't have a guiding skill, great mountaineers, but they're, you know, a big part of guiding is actually you know, looking after other people and avoiding accidents. And that's when people get uh, aren't strong enough to be able to have a summit attempt, you've got to stop them going up there. What's the point? You know, letting people get to the point where they fall over in the tracks and then they go, now you go down. Uh, it just puts everybody else in, in danger. And this is part of that cultural issue. It's also a cultural issue, again, coming back to our Western values about mountaineering and, and how a lot of Westerners don't want to be guided because you know that they, they, they see themselves as a as an adventurer and um, you know really good at everything they've ever done, and they get up on the mountain and um, they don't want to have somebody telling them what to do. So they get themselves into trouble because you know their sherpa who's escorting them is, isn't going to tell them to put their gloves on when it's cold. Uh, they're not going to. Um, you know, make sure they're fed properly and uh, everything, put the sunblock on and, you know, put your glasses on here and, um, you know, we're going to have to turn around because you're going too slowly and we're not going to get to the summit. And, you know, this is what we're seeing. And again, in the early days, we saw this from Western operators who were bringing clients who weren't real guides uh, and the same thing would happen. And, when Russell Bryce ended up coming over from the north side to the south side of Everest um, in the 90s, um, he had tried to set up um, a thing he called IGO 8000, which is International Guiding Organization uh, 8000. So to try and get everybody who was running expeditions to the 8000 meter peaks to uh, have to follow some, some standards, have standards, you know, things like communications, medical equipment, rescue equipment, um, these sorts of things. And also part of it was defining what style of expedition you ran, uh, be that guided like we do or um, commercially led, um, you know, and so on. There are you know, different categories that people might slot into. And some of these operators were perfect for experienced mountaineers to go in and, and 
say, be on a commercially led expedition or services only. Um, but what we're seeing now is anybody going on to, you know, those same standard um, type of uh, operations and not have the support that they need. But Russell tried to set up IGO 8000 and probably didn't get enough buy-in from, you know, all the operators. We were all busy just trying to survive. And, uh, and it was kind of a shame that disappeared because if that had stuck around, it would be totally valid right now. And it's what is needed right now over there in the pool. I absolutely agree 100%. There needs to be something that really holds everyone accountable for standards. Mm -hmm. um, do you, does your company run expeditions on both the north and the south side or primarily the south or the north? We've always been primarily the, the south side, you know, ever since I've been there. I haven't actually climbed Everest from the north side, but we go to Choyo U uh, in the post monsoon on the north side in Tibet. Uh, and good to see that's opened up again. So, you know, next year we're going to be running expeditions back there. But no, we're, we've always been a south side um, operator. Um, it's it's a kind of like a second home. I think I've spent more time there than I have at home. So um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear that Nepal is just magical and there's so many people that you know, they start their Nepal experience with a trek and many don't even leave or they decide to, you know, climbing, climb these huge mountains because there's just something about it that is different than any other place. Um, so you started out as just a regular mountain guide and tell us a little bit. I know a lot of people who listen probably know parts of the story, but how did you become the owner of your company? So consultants. Adventure consultants, that's right. So I, I, as I said, I went to Everest the first time in 1992 with Rob and Gary, Rob and Gary Ball, who had started up Paul and Ball Adventure Consultants, uh, had the audacious idea of guiding people up Everest. I was a very active mountain guide and mountaineer in New Zealand at the time and uh, had climbed a little bit in the Himalayas and, um, and Alaska and so on. And so they wanted somebody to come and help. I came along as third guide. Uh, we summited that that year, um, Rob and Gary and myself and uh, half a dozen clients and a, and a few Sherpas. Uh, went back in uh, 93. Um, Gary was suffering some respiratory issues. And then after in the post monsoon in 93, he actually died on Dalagiri of pulmonary edema, tragically. Um, he was with Rob uh, on that trip. Uh, and then Rob was running Adventure Consultants by himself. Uh, I was guiding more of their expeditions for them. And then uh, in 1996, uh, I was not there on Everest. I was running a short trip to Pomori. Um, and I was uh, in touch with Rob and uh, Met up with the group, and then they went up to summit in '96, and then tragically, um, you know, a storm came in. It ended up with uh, Rob and several of the rest of the team passing away, and and everybody knows about '96 because of Into Thin Air and the IMAX movie and so on, um, and then more recently the Everest movie that uh, I was involved in making, helping to make. Um, so at that point, I had 
set myself up as a high altitude guide and, and my two mentors had passed away and I figured I was going to carry on guiding over there some way. Um, and then Rob's wife, Jan, suggested that if I wanted to buy the remnants of the company and carry it on, then, um, you know, that was something that, that she was up for. And so I did that, um, not really, you know, knowing uh, how long it would last or whatever, but a big part of my motivation was to keep our Sherpa crew working. Uh, they were as devastated as anybody else about what happened in 96. And so uh, we started up again and ran expeditions, um, you know, to Amitabalam, Choyu, um, that same year. And then uh, Ed Visas came to uh, work with me on some of those because Ed had also been working with Rob and Gary in 94 and, and 95. So we'd come to know each other. So, um that was where it all started. And uh, I'd already had a guiding operation here in New Zealand that I was a, a, a partner in. Uh, and so had a bit of an awareness about you know, running a mountain guiding business, but it was next level again, being on the international stage and you know, dealing with uh, uh, international um, you know, clientele and so on. So. It was a big step up for me. Uh, I was quite happy working as a guide and was quite happy with Rob and Gary running the company, but uh, that, that ended up changing and putting me into a situation where I had to you know, decide my future and which way I was going to go. And so I picked up the uh, remnants of, of the company and, and, and carried on. So that was uh, yeah, quite a few years ago now, um, 27 <laughs> years ago or something. Uh, so we've carried on building the company. It's based in New Zealand, but we had a New Zealand operation, um, European operation based in Chamonix as part of you know, a climbing school and a sense of you know, the peaks around there, Mont Blanc, Matterhorn and so on. Uh, and then got to the stage where we were running, you know, 35 to 50 expeditions a year. Uh, all over the world uh, prior to COVID coming in. And that put a, a stop on all of it. Everything stopped for, for two years. And in the last year, we've started up again and we've rebuilt and running an, ran an Everest expedition this year and running expeditions to Nepal and Vincent and Antarctica and all the seven summits. You know, so we're back operating pretty much the, the same as what we were before. But you know, we took a, a, a big hit um, through those couple of years and takes quite a lot to get restarted again, just from the administration side of it. Uh, but very exciting that we're back up and doing this and still able to get out there and enjoy being in the high mountains. And, and I think bring our approach to it all. We've got a certain style. I think, you know, Adventure Consultants has always been identified as the one of the operators that everybody else is trying to emulate. Um, and that's a good position to be in. I mean, we try to do things to the highest standard that we can, um, surrounded by you know, great staff, motivated people. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be involved in a, in a world like this where we're bringing lots of pleasure to people, uh, but we're doing it with a sort of a panache and a, and a style and with you know, safety at the forefront. Uh, to um, 
you know, put our mark on in a, you know, an industry that has, well, wasn't around when we started. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is the industry growing, going through some you know, growing pains. Uh, it would be really good to see it self-regulated, but it's not really occurring over in Nepal. Uh, so, you know, but at the same time, everybody is very reluctant to see government intervention and regulation in Nepal because they've just got the ability to not get it right over there and would probably make things worse rather than better. Uh, but I think in the long term, if they were to uh, get some consultants in to show them what they could do and how they could run it, you know, maybe look at the, um, you know, the Denali style approach, uh, you know, so that we can protect the mountain and protect the reputation of, of mountaineering and Everest and, and, and ensure that people who go to the mountain uh, have the skills to be there. Uh, I think that would be, you know, the first step. That does make a lot. That does make a lot of sense, um, because Denali is regulated, and there are some other ones out there as well. Did you ever think that you, like back when you started in the mountaineering industry, just as a guide, and before that as a climber, did you think that you were basically going to be the owner? of such a big mountaineering expedition company, which is, and like you said, you guys are kind of the standard in a lot of ways. Um, you're considered one of the, one of the guiding companies out there. So did you ever think that that was going to happen? No, no, I, I had no idea. I, I was quite happy just being a guide and you know, doing lots of um, really amazing trips to different parts of the world. And, you know, I just felt that um, I was incredibly lucky. So, and I, I didn't really have an ambition to um, be a, a businessman, if you like. I had an ambition to be in the mountains. And that's what uh, I think still translates through our organization uh, is that it's actually not about making money. It's actually about being able to perform our art to the best of our ability. And I think everybody that I work with uh, feels the same way about, you know, their um, contribution to that. And, and that's um, a really privileged place to be in. And for us to have, a, a if you like, a working environment uh, that is uh, following uh, that sort of thread, then, um, you know, it's, it's been a, a privilege. Uh, but I never thought I was going to be there. It was never something that I uh, aspired to. Uh, I just, yeah, just love love climbing and love being in the mountains and showing people, uh, you know, the great environment and and being able to operate with people in some of the most extreme conditions and environments in the world and do it safely. And you've had, I mean, your company and you have had all of these ups and downs. You guys had the '96 Everest disaster. There was uh, 2014 on Everest, 2015 on Everest, and then COVID. And what is the biggest thing that you have personally learned from those ups and downs? Uh, probably the biggest thing is that um, nothing's permanent and that change will occur. Uh, and that 
you've just got to be prepared for it, um, not expect that life's just going to carry on on a certain trajectory and it's all going to be bare and skittles down the track. Uh, that we, and I think we, we learn a lot. You, you're right, we've been through um, some calamities, um, you know, some, you go through minor calamities on every expedition, major ones have, have occurred, you know, 30 years on Everest and the most extreme conditions in the world. And of course, things are gonna go wrong and they have, um, but to actually have the fortitude to work through that and realize that, you know, every time you are confronted with a challenge, you have the ability to learn something about yourself and how you respond to um, these events, like just going to the mountains alone, especially big mountains like Everest, I've always likened it to holding a big mirror up to yourself where you get to see uh, all of your strengths, all of your weaknesses, and you can do with that what you will. First thing is you've got to do is be open enough to identify what your weaknesses are, and that's what mountaineering uh, gives us. It gives us challenges that we can um, supersede where we were before by learning something, developing ourselves, becoming a better climber. Uh, but that also relates to becoming a better person as well. Once you, you know, realize that you, you have to work through these difficult times, you can't just ignore them. Um, and getting through that on multiple occasions, I think it gives you a bit more acceptance um, that things don't always work to a plan and that things might change and um, go with it. I mean, you know, life is an adventure. And if you live in this world, it's a, it's a huge adventure and it's always going to challenge you. And if you don't want to be challenged, then don't do this. And that's why when you see some people come to the mountain and they're like, well, I don't want to be challenged. Um, that's what you come for uh, <laughs> so that you can, have a bit of a struggle and then learn a bit about yourself. You've talked about how your company has grown. Um, initially, when you took it over and now, how many staff did you start with initially and how many do you have now? <laughs> well, I started with zero staff. Well, kind of adopted uh, one that was working with um, Madeline David, who was still working with Rob and Gary. For, she stayed with us for a little while, but then we um started off Suze Kelly's started as um with us back when I took it over and um is now general manager and uh we built up to a staff of um just in our office here in, in New Zealand uh 14 staff uh and then we had guides all over the world uh, up to 25 in New Zealand we work with 20 or 30 guides in Europe um, guides from all over the world who join us on expeditions, uh, hundreds of Nepalese staff. Uh, it was very hard to put a finger on exactly how many. I've never been able to do that, but uh, because it changes all the time, with depending mm -hmm. on what events we've got on, what expeditions we've got on, um, you know, what time of the year it is. Uh, but yeah, it's been really busy. Uh, so we're back to. Uh, half a dozen staff, plus we've got um, Caroline Bracey over in Chamonix as our uh, uh, European operations. And so we've got staff in Nepal who are, who are permanent with us. 
Um, so we're, we're building back up. We're just uh, you know, getting back to that point where we have we have a few more staff and spreads the load a little bit. Because COVID did take its toll on your on your company, it did for most of the expeditions. And did you think at the time that it, you were going to be able to come make a comeback? Well, I treated it a little bit like uh, you know avalanche condition in the mountains that you know <laughs> you you run away from it and uh, don't put yourself in harm's way uh, until it's safe to go out again. And that's kind of the approach that we've had. So we hunkered down. You know, we went into hibernation. You know, we had to shut everything down, and you know, unfortunately, you know, had to lay everyone off because there was no income, and uh, you know, still a lot of outgoings. So, to actually get it, you know, back up and running, you know, it's taken you know a reasonable amount of uh, of, of effort. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we went back to Everest this year, and all of our Sherpa staff came back to work for us who have been working for other operators over the last few years. And it was so nice to see them all back. And they were just really happy to see us back so they could come back and work with us. Um, and that was you know, really fulfilling for me uh, to, to have that happen. I, I've been told by several people that um, the Sherpa community really likes having your company like as a boss. They uh -huh. really appreciate you guys and um, you 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 do them right. So yeah, thanks. Yeah, and that is that's always been our intention um, to to look after our you know staff. You know, and after the earthquake in 2015, you know, we lost six staff in base camp. And we started up a, a fund uh, based on those accidents that occurred in the Himalayas for the families of um, the men who had died, who were breadwinners for the family. So we've got 13 children that we've been uh, putting through school through our Sherpa Future Fund. And that's thanks to sponsors who work with us uh, to either sponsor a child individually or to contribute to the fund that looks after the you know, well-being of these kids. So we've had these kids go through um, you know, high-quality boarding school so that we can provide them what their fathers were working on the mountains to achieve uh, so that their kids could get an education and they'd stand you know, a lot better chance in life to... Uh, you know, to be able to succeed. So, you know, that's just been one of the things that we've done to try and support uh, the staff uh, because it's, you know, it's, it's vital that we can contribute where we can and we're all in it together is the way I feel about it. You know, in this company, we're all, you know, we all have a part to play and, uh, you know, if we can help each other out, then that's a good thing too. And can anybody who wants to contribute to this fund? And if so, where they where can they find it? Uh, Sherpa Future Fund. You can find it on our website. I think it's in Specialty Services. Um, and it's uh, if you dig down there, you can you can find it. Anybody can contribute. Uh, so, you know, that's that that's always uh, appreciated to get the support to help these kids out. Um, 
what are some of the things you told me just before we started <laughs> recording that you have a project that you've been working on. Tell us a little bit more about it because on this podcast, we talk about books a lot. Yeah. So, uh, one thing that was positive during COVID was that uh, I managed to finally get around to writing a book that I've been scribbling away at for the last 20 years, 30 years maybe. Uh, so I've written a book um, called uh, Everest Mountain Guide, uh, The Remarkable Story of a Kiwi Mountaineer. Uh, it's been being produced, uh, published here in New Zealand in, in October, uh, first publication, uh, still only in New Zealand at this point, but it, Chronicles what's happened over the last 30 years, or all my life really, which has been a bit longer than that. Uh, but uh, focusing on what occurred in my life to get myself to a point that I was uh, guiding on Everest. And then also all of the events that have uh, occurred since that time, like three decades on Everest. It's a long, long time. Lots happened. So you know, there was a certain amount that had to get or couldn't make it into the book. Uh, but I've really tried to give a bit of a background as to what it takes to guide on Everest and some of the events and incidents that have happened, you know, over the breadth of that time. And yeah, there's a lot of drama in there and it has been a very dramatic time in lots of ways, but there's also been a lot of highlights that uh, not only for me, but for uh, our staff or uh, the clients who come along and, uh, and, and also to, to be in that mountain environment. Uh, you were alluding to it before, but one of the great things about being in Nepal is the, you know, the Nepalese people are very hospitable, um, you know, great to work with, hard workers, you know, humble. Um, they've got a lot of, a lot of incredibly great attributes that, um, you know, that I really admire. And I've always felt like I've been working alongside them. Um, and that, you know, we're all in it together, you know, especially when I was first there as a mountain guide on Everest. Uh, you know, I was a, a mountain worker, just like um, the Sherpas were. So, you know, I, I felt a certain affinity to um, to working with them. And, and that's one of the really big reasons we enjoy going back. It's not just the physical makeup of the mountain. It's the community that we're there with that um, we so enjoy. I can't wait until your book comes out. I'm looking forward to it. You have to let us know so that I can Okay, I'll let you know. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in when I've got a hard copy in front of me and I'll show it to you. And uh, Fabulous. it's only being uh, uh, published in New Zealand at this point. So um, if anyone knows an American publisher who wants to publish it, let me know. Uh, but we'll be able to do book sales. Uh, you can be able to uh, hook up on our website uh, and make a uh, purchase once the book is published in um, early October is what when we're anticipating it'll be here after the printing's finished. I'm excited. I can't wait. Um, we talk a lot on the podcast about those that are no longer here from the mountaineering community. And did you want to share something about Rob and um, the team from 1996 any anecdotes that you want to share because ever the their ever story is very important to remember yeah I mean Rob was a, a great friend we'd started doing trips in the mountains from when 
you know, I was 15 years old and uh, he was a similar age to me. And he was um, somebody who was incredibly uh, thoughtful and capable and, um, you know, he had a, a, a great brain for sorting out problems. And he was also very, you know, committed mountaineer. He did a lot of climbing here in New Zealand before he went overseas uh, and achieved great things. And, uh, you know, he was a, a, a driven individual, but he was also relatively quiet and, and humble and, and um, just easy to be around. And, you know, Rob was a, um, somebody who was always going to achieve great things. Uh, with, uh, with his passing, you know, which was um, you know, tragic, uh, there, were, there were other people as well who, who went through that event. Um, you know, Andy Harris was another guide who was working on the mountain with Rob, who, who disappeared uh, that night. And you know, we understand he'd gone up to try, gone back up the mountain to try and help Rob. Uh, you know, we didn't know for quite some time what had happened to Andy because John Krakauer had got down to South Cole and he thought that he had traveled down to South Cole with Andy Harris all the way back to South Cole and that Andy Harris had disappeared. But uh, John Krakauer didn't understand that the guy he was with was Martin Adams, who was with the Alpine Ascents team, who you know was two feet shorter than Andy Harris and had an American accent and a different colored suit and so on. <laughs> um, but you know, so we were confused for quite a long time about what what, what had happened there. Um, and you know, Andy had been a great friend through my early guiding uh, era, era as well. Um, you know, Doug Hansen, Suko Nam, Namba, um, you know, also perished that time. And you know, the whole thing was incredibly tragic. And that is, you know, what we don't go to the mountains for. And uh, but you realise, or I realised after the events that. Uh, if I just stopped climbing, it wasn't going to stop these things happening. We weren't going to see you know, people not dying in the mountains anymore. Um, so it's just uh, it takes some drive and motivation to get up and, and, and go into the mountains when you know this has happened. But what I had to really focus on was with taking over adventure consultants that you know I had to go next level with um, ensuring that we did remain safe and that we. Um, you know, I don't want to see what happened in '96 as the last chapter of um, you know, Kiwi guides on on Everest. Uh, we'd achieved so much, and Rob and Gary had achieved so much. Uh, they were great mentors and had had set the scene in many ways for, for you know, how the industry should be moving forward. Probably alongside Todd Burleson from Alpine Ascents, you know, we had a similar sort of focus, um, and to actually use their memories and the incidents that had occurred uh, as a learning experience to avoid these things happening again, um, you know, was what I guess their passing gave us uh, that has probably helped um, us and the whole industry in many ways. Thank you so much for joining us, Guy. I really appreciate our conversation. I hope to have you back on once your book is published so you can talk about that. And we'll be watching your uh, company next year on Mount Everest. Thank you so much. Thanks for, for that. It's been lovely to talk.
And that is it for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Guy was so much fun to interview. Uh, next week, we have a fabulous lady, Saskia von der Drift. I hope I pronounced it correctly. Sorry, Saskia. Um, and she participated in 2022 in the Mount Everest Marathon, which I hadn't really heard of before I started talking to her. Um, such a sweet lady. She is from the Netherlands and I really enjoyed her talking about her experience basically doing the highest marathon in the entire world. Uh, one more quick thing that I wanted to mention. I'm working on not editing so much because I think that I lose a lot when I over edit and it just, just doesn't sound as smooth. Um, a lot of it is because I kind of stumble over my words. Sometimes I become self-conscious. I think part of it is because I do think in Hebrew and English. And so I stumble a little bit, but then I start thinking about my pronunciation because, you know, I did get that review that I can't say mountain correctly because I say mountain and, you know, it's a regional thing. Um, and so I'm trying to make it more smooth and just working on that. Um, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. And that is it for tonight's episode. Climb your own climb, everybody. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the All About Everest podcast. We would love it if you would rate, subscribe, and follow wherever you listen to your podcast. You can find us on social media at All About Everest Podcast or at Mama Bear Outdoors. You can support our podcast by subscribing to our Patreon or by buying us a coffee. Until next time.